turn to Habakkuk. If you don't have a Bible, uh, and even if you do have a Bible, you might have a hard time finding Habakkuk. It's in the Minor Prophets. We have it in your bulletin as well. Um, and we're going to look at Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19, and bring closure to this great book. And the passage will be up on the screen as well. Habakkuk has been on a journey. We're going to talk about that in just a second, of of communicating with God. This is a conversation between the prophet and God. It's not your traditional prophecy where uh, God gives a prophet a word to tell the people. Instead, it's an ongoing dialogue between the prophet Habakkuk and the Lord himself, okay? And he's been frustrated with God. We've seen this. And he's finally moved in this journey, emotional journey of grief and frustration and depression and so forth, to this place now of praising God from his heart and he's singing a song, or this is the recorded version of a song that he had in response that they actually used in worship. How do we know that? Because at the end of verse 19, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. This, was, this is like Carson, the prophet, who says, like, I'm going to write a song for New Valley. And at the end of it, after much suffering and grief, he writes this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will praise the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on high places. This is the word of the Lord. What we see at the end of Habakkuk, in a way, we've been like watching his life, and we're now seeing a man mature spiritually in front of our very eyes. We've seen him go on this journey, this conversation that he's had. He's been upset. He's been asking God to judge Judah, his own people. He's saying, it feels like you're silent. Uh, There's injustice. The the leaders are corrupt. The king is corrupt. The the prophets are corrupt. The, The priests are corrupt. Everybody's corrupt, and you're doing nothing about it. He looks at his own people. He's not judging other nations. He's judging himself and Judah and saying, we're corrupt, and I'm crying out for you to do something about it, and it feels like you do nothing. There's lies. People are ignoring the law. It's just horrible. And then God says, oh, no, no, I'm listening, and I'm going to judge the people, but I'm going to do it by sending the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to destroy you and your people. Habakkuk says, that's horrible, that's worse, they're worse than we are, I can't believe you would do that. And he's gone on this long journey, and God is not relenting from his plan. He's not saying, oh, okay, Habakkuk, I get it, you know, I won't do that. He says, I'm doing it, this is what's happening. Habakkuk waits on the Lord, and then we find him finally getting to a place where in spite of he's not getting what he wants, and he's not getting how he wants it, or he is sort of getting what he wants, but not the way he wants it done. He's coming to a place of rejoicing, in the Lord. In verse 17, we read this, though the fig tree should not blossom, and the fruit not on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields have no food, and the flock be cut off, and the fold there be no herd in the stalls. Now, the fig tree is a symbol of joy. We have fig trees here in the valley. Where I grew up, we didn't have those. We have them. We have a fig vine in our backyard. Figs actually grow. Some of you have fig trees in your yard. I've seen it. They're really cool. And there'll be a blossom with the fig tree. And then there's fruit later after the blossom. 
like our citrus trees. And what he's saying is, there's going to be no beauty, no blossom on the tree, no fruit on the tree, no, no dessert, no sweetness. There's no olives on the tree. Nothing savory, nothing sweet, no olive oil, no grain in the field, no bread, no meat, no cow, nothing in the stall, no sheep. There's no joy, there's no celebration, there's nothing. He's saying like today stinks and tomorrow is much worse. That's the forecast. Today is horrible, the day after tomorrow is going to be horrible, and for a long, long, long time, it's going to be really, really bad. That is what he's saying. And yet he's saying, I have hope. But what's interesting for Habakkuk, his hope is not found in anything in the near future. It's for generations to come. You see a patience in Habakkuk. Patience. God is God. God is good. He will be faithful. And he's looking out now maybe Two, three generations from now, he sees hope. Now, here's the reality about us, though. Let's stop for a second and talk about patience. Because you see the spiritual maturity in in Habakkuk. Patience. Friends, like, think about the most patient person you know in our culture, or like someone you know personally. Who's the most patient person you know? And whoever you thought of is still incredibly infected with impatience. Why? Because they're an American. In, in the year 2016. The, the most patient person you know is probably deeply infected with this problem of impatience because of the culture and society in which we live. We are a quick fix, silver bullet society. Let's face it, right? I want coffee. Okay. I have a Keurig. <laughs> and, and just seconds later, I say to myself, like, you know, a cup of coffee sounds good. And I used to have to, like, go to the laborious task of grinding beans, right, and pouring water in, and it would take all of five, ten minutes of, oh, it's too much work, you know, but instead I'm like, I want coffee, and I want it now, so I just go, click, press a button, and in 30 seconds I have a really mediocre cup of coffee, (laughs) right? Or I can go drive one mile in any direction from my house, and I can choose from like 15 different Starbucks, for a slightly better version of coffee. I want food. I have drive-thrus everywhere around my house. I can literally walk or drive to a number of restaurants where I can drive through. But do you find yourself in the drive-thru if there is a lull in the traffic or the exchange of the food, even for a minute, you're like, well, I thought this is fast food. It's been like two minutes. What is going on? It's like, I want to think cheeseburger, and they just hand it to me, right? I need information. Anything. You know, this is what's fascinating about the culture we live in, the t- day and age. Like, we'll be watching a movie, and I'm like, I wonder if that's historically accurate. You know, we're watching Crown or whatever, and it's got a historical background. It's like, oh, well, pause for just a second. And within seconds, I have that historical background on Wikipedia, which, of course, is perfectly accurate and all. I Google it. Any information I want, instantaneously, I Google it. If I'm sick, I go to urgent care. Open, quick, get in fast. It's better than ER. You know, it's better than the emergency room. It's like, it's for me right now. I have pain. Take this pill. I want something. Anything that my mind or heart can think of within two days can be delivered at my door with Amazon Prime. No extra charge for the delivery. (laughs) I want to communicate with you. 
then I text you. If, I, if you're my age, you text still. Like, and it's funny how things evolve. Like, you know what I mean? When I first moved here, we actually used cell phones to talk to one another, and it wasn't so much smartphones. We were still just using them as, uh, you know, and then they weren't the huge, you know, we had gotten down to the flip phones by the time I moved here 13 years ago, but we would actually call one another. But I remember the first time I got a text. It's like this person would normally call, and then I get this text, and I'd never seen one before. And my response was a one-word answer, two, two letters. I just said, no click, send. I'm not doing this. Like, it's too much, you know? Like, now I text constantly. Communication evolves, and if I text you, I can even know whether you read it or not, and if I see that you read it and you don't respond immediately, I assume some horrible, like, you've probably been kidnapped, and that's why you're not responding. I expect immediate response, and we laugh and say, yeah, that's us. We're this ridiculously impatient society, and it's so funny, and it's funny but it's tragic. And it's tragic because it's shaping us and shifting us into people that we don't, we don't think at a profound level of how this is impacting our relationships and the way that we view marriage and family and parenting and all these other things. Now, technology is not an awful thing, but do you stop to think about the ways in which we in our instant gratification society are being shifted, shaped, and molded into a very, very impatient people? One, just one illustration of why this is important is this. Many people are dealing with struggles in your marriage. And as a pastor, and the elders in this church, the pastors in this church, and small group leaders in this church, we have a window into reality. And, and you often in your marriages have a sense of like, this is unique. Like what we're dealing with is utter unique. And you come into a place like this and you look around and you're like, everyone else is happy and they got their arm around one another and they're praising together and they're, you know, everyone is happy and their marriage is great. And you assume my marriage is difficult and it's unique, right? And you're wrong, first of all, because you, it's not unique. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is a struggle. It's hard. And we live in this quick fix culture where we want uh, a cure and, and, and we want it now. And the problem with that, and, and this is the thing that's so important as you think about patience, is people want a quick fix to marriage. They want a Keurig solution to their marriage problems. But friends, even if you've been married just a couple years, you don't get into the tangles and the knots in your marriage overnight, right? That happens over weeks, months, even years. And then we want to hit the button and say, undone, it's all good. She totally forgives me. I totally forgive her. We get along. We communicate. Uh, we understand one another, even though we're totally different genders and different experience and different backgrounds, all these things, right? Like we just want to push the button and say, fixed. And that's the problem. In a quick fix, impatient culture, it takes years, perhaps, for God to unravel. It's like often when I meet with someone about their marriage, I will say, I believe this can be a turning point where you look back and say, you know what, that couple years ago was the turning point where we began to grow in grace towards one another and things changed. But it takes, it takes time, friends. Can you be patient with one another? When you marry, I just did a wedding last weekend. When you, when you say the vows, you're saying in sickness and in health and in I prom you're making these commitments, whether it's good or it's bad, can we not be patient with one another in this relationship called marriage? On to the next point. Habakkuk is going to show us what true maturity looks like in many ways in his life, but I want to kind of look at like what maturity isn't. 
and the ways that we normally define maturity that actually aren't maturity, but they look like it. And they, they come close, but they're not quite the same. Christian maturity, what actually is it? Is it understanding of doctrine and biblical knowledge, for example? While the spiritually mature person will definitely have good knowledge of Scripture and understand doctrine, that just means, you know, right belief about God and theology means the study of God. Like, the spiritually mature person will have that, but the person who has that is not necessarily spiritually mature. My, my background, our denomination, our tradition is known for its theology and its understanding of books and doctrine and study and it's beautiful but we define often in our tradition that person is mature because they've read these volumes of books or that person is mature because they agree with this historical creed or document but trust me from an experience standpoint that is not what makes a human being mature follow jesus that mature person may have those things and should even have those things but that does not make a person mature Behavior modification. Change behavior. We often look at that and say, that person is definitely mature because their behavior has changed. And when you follow Jesus and really have faith in him, you will have behaviors that change because of your love, your new affection and love for God. You will change. Be transformed, therefore, by the renewing of your mind, Paul says, and so forth. So we have a transformation. We grow more and more in the likeness of Christ. That's called sanctification through theologians, justification in an instant, sanctification over a lifetime. But friends, just because you've changed some behavior, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're spiritually mature. Lots of different methods to changing behavior. We see that all the time. In recovery groups, thank goodness for addiction, there's often change in behavior, not necessarily because of Jesus. Exercise programs, treatment centers, other religions see behavioral change. We want our behavior to change, but that's not necessarily what spiritual maturity is. Experience. In evangelical circles, many of you grew up like in, in, in experiences like where it's about experience. Uh, a lot of Christian circles, maturity is defined, what, have you had the second work of grace, it's called, like in one of the traditions I grew up in. Second works of grace are awesome. The problem is when you say like, this, will, this is the key. Like you had a first work of grace, you came to faith. You need a second work of grace where God shows up with new power or baptism of the Holy Spirit or whatever it is. And so the, the, the problem with that is, yes, of course you need a second work of grace, but you need a third and a fourth and a nine thousandth, right? <laughs> Amen? Like I need, I need a work of God's grace every day. Experience. When Becky and I, I was finishing seminary, we were newly married, we're living in our expansive apartment in Wilmore, Kentucky. <laughs> it was about as big as this right here, but it cost 200 bucks a month. It was incredible. A train track literally went right by. I mean, right by. It would shake. Like, it was wonderful. And uh, <laughs> there was a revival that came to town, and it was a block away from our little apartment building, there was a Methodist church, and a revival came. Now, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Like, <clears throat> you scheduled revival, okay? And they brought revival from Canada uh, and to, to us, and, and everybody knew about it. It was a big deal. And so revival was happening, and many of the students and even some of the professors were attending the revival. Everybody was talking about it. It was a week-long deal at this church. That was kind of the big church in town. 
I decided I've got to check this out, so I go and I sit sort of towards the back watching the revival <laughs> as a skeptic, and I'm sort of looking in, and here's what I saw. I saw a number of people coming front uh, towards the front. I saw a number of people getting laid hands on and, and lots of different manifestations of emotion. One was like multiple people coming forward. This person would lay hands on them, and they would get knocked out, like they call it slain in the spirit. People falling to the ground, uh, and, and writhing, and so forth, and I began to ask people later, like, well, what happened there? What's going on? And by the way, not all of this is bad, but like, I'm asking them at, at like lunch in the cafeteria, like, what, what were you feeling? You know, I don't really remember a lot. Uh, I, I had these emotions, but I was just laying there, and so forth, and it kind of reminded me of like my fraternity brothers after a after a, a big party that we would host the night before, it's like, yeah, I passed out, I blacked out, and I had no idea what happened, but it felt great. I mean, it was incredible. I'll do it next weekend. And so <laughs> my point is, the experience about revival, and I want to pause and talk about real revival for a moment, is this. You, you can't schedule revival. You know what I mean? You can't put revival on the calendar. Hey, let's have, if I ever say we're having revival next week and say, no, that's not how it works because you don't cause revival. That's something that the Holy Spirit does. And I beg God for revival in this church, in this city, in this nation. And we need to ask God to bring a revival because true revival is a movement of the Holy Spirit that he is choosing to do, perhaps out of response of prayer and humility, but when the Holy Spirit moves, what happens is it's not just experience and emotion. There is repentance. And you look and read and historically, there have been legitimate revivals throughout the, the world and our nation even. And when they've taken place, people are deeply moved to repentance. And we repent every week of our sins through the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. But when revival happens, there's weeping with repentance. There was a revival at my seminary, a legitimate one that's been studied even and talked about, but what happened was they didn't schedule it. They were just having a worship service, and when revival broke out, literally the Holy Spirit showed up, and people stayed there for days, not leaving, weeping, repenting of sin, and being moved to actual holiness. They started loving their neighbors as much as they loved their, like people, there were, you could objectively look back and say the town was different, the poor were treated different, like there, things happened out of that revival. Experience is not enough to say that's maturity. We've all seen people with religious experience that have no maturity, right? Activism. Last one. The spiritually mature per person will do good, seek justice, like be active for God, but I know lots of activists for God that don't show a lot of spiritual maturity. So what is spiritual maturity? There's so much that can be said about it, but like, and it includes many of the things we've talked about. Of course, it's prayer, knowing the scripture, but all in order to love God more. Habakkuk 3.18 says this, even though the fields are barren, there is no food, uh, even though there's no joy, there's no party, there's no gathering, there's no Thanksgiving dinner, yet, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That is spiritual maturity. In spite of the fact that God has told him, I'm going to take your entire nation into exile, and you may not even live. 
okay, I will praise you. And I will find my joy in you. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That doesn't sound like salvation to me. That sounds horrible. But I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in him. Here's how I'm defining spiritual maturity today on the basis of what Habakkuk is is teaching us. Spiritual maturity is a lifelong journey where we come to know that God is not a means to an end, but is the ultimate joy himself. God is not the means to some other end, although that's how we treat him almost every day, all day. He's not that. He's not some cosmic Santa Claus that we go to to get something else. We go to him ultimately when we are mature and maturing because he is joy. I don't go to him to say, I need joy. Can you give me this? You stand and say, I need you. My mouth is parched. My heart is empty until I find my rest and my hope and my trust in you. I come to you. And this is where we finally see Habakkuk. And isn't it beautiful? And oh, friends, this is what we need. If we have any space in our heart, we go to Amazon, we go to food, we go, we're looking for some other thing, some other good thing even to fill us, but God is saying, I am joy itself. I'm the fountainhead of joy. I'm the fountainhead of goodness. And so often the storms of life, let's face it, reveal whether we're going to God as a means to some other end or whether we're going to God because he's God and because he's good, right? I go to God, help me with my marriage. Please fix my marriage. Fix her, fix him. I go to you, Lord, to fix my kid. Please fix this child, right? Fix my health, fix their health. I go to God, clean up my finances. And here's the beautiful thing, friends. He cares about our finances. He cares about our health. He cares about your children. He cares about your marriage. But the thing, the real thing that he wants us to see and to to grow into is to not look beyond him. He is the joy. (laughs) You want a better marriage? Find your joy in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Find your profound joy in who your God is and watch what that does to your marriage. Watch what that does to your parenting and your life. God, friends, created all things good. And that's, that's such good news. We're not Platonists, okay? Plato taught, in essence, that uh, the material world is evil and that the only thing that's good is the spiritual life, the inner life. The Gnostics taught this too. That's not the gospel. The, the Bible teaches God creates all things out of nothing by his own power and he declares it all what? Good. When he gets to humanity, he creates people and he says, really good. Only one thing, I say this all the time, that that God declares not good in creation and that's that Adam was alone. So he creates Eve. He creates the gift of marriage. Our world is teeming with good things. This earth, is, it's got the flower, the blossom on the fig tree. We have figs. This week, I hope this is true of you. You'll be gathering with friends and family to celebrate and to give thanks. And and when you go around your table, you'll give thanksgiving for 
for food and education and teachers and friends and sports teams and grandparents and aunts and uncles and and the house that you're sitting in, the food that you're enjoying, and the cars that you drive, and, and get creative in your thanksgiving. My goodness, we've been blessed with so many good gifts. But our problem is that we take the good things, these good gifts that God has given us, and we elevate them, even though he's the creator of them. Instead of worshiping him as creator, we take good gifts and elevate them to ultimate things and worship the gift instead of the gift giver. We, we worship the creation instead of the creator, right? And when we do that, we are allowing our hearts and our joy to be crushed, and it inevitably leads us to despair. It has to. Your spouse, your children, your loved ones are good gifts. Your work, your material objects you have, these are good gifts gifts, but they cannot bear the weight of your very soul and all of your hopes and desires and dreams. Here's where I've really been wrestling with this. Uh, Becky and I <coughs> watched a movie last night, actually, called Arrival, and I'm not going to get, it's about aliens, but I was expecting an alien movie, and I came out of there feeling this deep, re- retrospective, like, thoughtful it's not what you think it is, this movie. I'm not going to, well, let me tell you, no, uh, it's, um, <laughs> I walked out of this movie realizing how much I'm mourning something right now. And here's what I'm mourning. I'm mourning the loss of my children's childhood. It's gone. And it's been gone, but it's just hitting me. It took my son, my oldest, graduating from high school and moving out to realize it, it, we're on a train that's and, and it's just picking up steam, and and the older I've gotten, the faster time goes. And here's the thing: you think you've got four kids with four years with your kids. I've got a freshman and a sophomore left in the house. But here's what we learned from the senior: as soon as they start driving, you don't see them again. <laughs> here's the insurance. Here's some gas money. We'll see you when you graduate from college. It's basically they're gone with school, with sports, with their friends. You start to matter less and less and their peers matter more and more and more and you're an addendum to their life and we're already there with all three of them and i mourn that it led me to tears yesterday really did but here's the thing i as good as those gifts are that can't be my center that can't be my joy and i have to look to older saints that have gone on and said there's life after young kids in the home right amen that, there's, that God is good and he blesses us and that you've been through it and you guys know, but it's hard. I mourn it. I mourn it. And I think it's okay to mourn it. It's a journey. Habakkuk shows us his journey. Isn't it good news too that Habakkuk just didn't get there? He went on a journey where he started out angry and got even more angry and then he arrives here. Friends, if you're wherever you are in the journey, be on the journey though to understand this reality. We're all one moment from everything being changed. These good gifts that we elevate, these good things that we, we say, these are the core things. They're, they're, we're one phone call from everything changing. This last week, last Sunday, on my way home, I called my mom. I call her most Sundays on my way home. Now realizing how hard it is you know, to have kids move on, and so I actually call her. <laughs> I called her on the way home, and, I did, and she had horrible news. Their 
worship pastor who's been their worship pastor for over a decade had taken uh, himself, two of his daughters, a a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old, and his mom, so grandma, two, two of the three granddaughters, and himself to northern Indiana for a band competition. On the way home, as they drove home, he hit a deer. They were fine from that. They pulled over waiting for a tow truck, and a semi-driver fell asleep and plowed right into them, killing three out of four of them. One daughter survived. The rest are gone. My mom said, we got to church, and everybody, this happened in the middle of the night. And they got to church the next day, and the pastor's gone, and his precious daughter, and his grandmother. And the church, this is a church of thousands. They didn't have services. They couldn't. No, the pastors could not preach. They sang a song, they prayed, and they dismissed. And they had the funeral, and they, they buried those folks this week. So how do you move on from something like that? How does that church move on with the, their pastor gone? How does that, that, that mom that's now left behind, you know, with, with nothing but heartache, how does that daughter that survived, how does she go on? And this isn't, this isn't to shock us, but it's to realize we worship and we elevate these good gifts, but friends, if that is your joy, even the best things, your family, those four people that live with me in my house are the greatest thing in my life on planet Earth and will be. There, there will be no greater. Those four, my wife and my three boys. But if I elevate them to the ultimate joy, if they are my ultimate reality and ultimate joy, they're too fragile. They can be taken from me or I can be taken from them. And Habakkuk's got good news for us. Even in tragedy like this, there's something greater. It's the love of God in Christ. There is something greater. It is the love of God in Christ. This is not simple platitudes. This is not like simple emotion. This is the depths of it. This is the deep stuff, friends. Spiritual maturity is finding your hope beyond the good gifts in front of our face. Habakkuk in verse 19 says this, The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. He says, God is my strength. I can't do it on my own. I can't do this, but God is my strength. He will lift me. He will take me to a place that only a deer could climb. Spiritual maturity, friends, it's a lifelong journey. You you don't arrive the most spiritually mature among us, and we have some spiritually mature people in this church, but even the most spiritually mature among us are still on a journey towards this to understand that God is not a means to an end. He is the fountainhead of joy. Knowing and experiencing the love of God in Christ, true joy, is not a layover. It's the final destination. It's not a layover. We don't, you don't, it is the vacation itself. It's the place you're trying to get to. It's, it's not a means to some other end. It is not a layover. It is the final destination of this life's journey. It's that the love of God in Christ Jesus is our joy. Where are you on that journey? None of us have arrived. None of us. Are you immature but maturing? Are you mature and still maturing? Are you just stuck in immaturity? Only you can answer that. 
God is not a means to another end. He alone is God. He alone is the fountainhead of joy. He is the goodness. He is the light. He is the life. He's the ultimate joy. You need to know this because you don't know the day or the hour in which your life will be demanded of you. I close with, my hope is built on nothing less. One of the greatest hymns of all time. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust a sweeter frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may we like Habakkuk find our heart even in great sorrow, great suffering and difficulty and and grief even. Find ourselves rejoicing. Finding our joy in you, finding our hope in you. Even even when you don't give us what we want or you give us uh, what we want by a means that we don't want, Father, Lord, help us to see our full and final satisfaction in you, to glorify you, to love you, to trust in you, to to see that you're not just a vehicle to get something else, but you are the ultimate. That everything else we're searching for in life only finds its completion in you. So God help us, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.